We're in Jeremiah chapter 51. If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible there or navigate on your tablet or your phone. Jeremiah chapter 51. The topic, after reading aloud Jeremiah's prophecy of the destruction of Babylon, Saraya ties a rock to the scroll and throws it into the Euphrates River to illustrate the nation's sinking. The title of our message, The Original Sunk Rockers. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to gather together and uh, in a real sense, Lord, listen to you speak to our hearts. You're always speaking to us, Lord, through things around us and people and your word as we uh, get together with you by ourselves. But corporately, Lord, there's, a, there's just a joy and a power as you go from heart to heart and minister uh, in, in the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would divide between the soul and the spirit in each life today and that you would reveal the love and the wonder of the love of Jesus Christ to us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Ever since Europeans came to America, the idea of the United States as a land of special blessings has absolutely captivated us. John Winthrop, the Puritan governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, famously drew upon the Bible to describe the early New England settlers when he said, and I quote, we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people people upon us. Now, certainly the United States of America has been uniquely blessed by God, but what if I were to tell you that every nation on the earth throughout history was pre-appointed by God for his own special purposes? Well, you might not believe me right away, but you will believe the Apostle Paul. In his famous sermon on Mars Hill, he said this about God and the nations, one of my favorite passages of scripture. He says in Acts 17, this is verses 26 and 27, God has made from one blood, Italian blood, every nation of men to dwell on all, well, all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Every nation has been pre-appointed as to its time to exist and the boundaries of both its geography and power in order to serve God's purposes. And one of those purposes is so that men in those nations should seek the Lord and find him. And so it may sound contrary to our way of thinking, but God says, I've scattered people all over the globe throughout all of human history for the express purpose that they might seek me, grope after me, and find me. Now, closing out the book of Jeremiah, there are three chapters about the nation of Babylon. Our chapter today chronicles her demise. Her pre-appointed time to seek and serve God in the sixth century was ended. Tucked within these 64 verses are two passages that can speak to us as believers in our pre-appointed nation. I'm gonna organize my thoughts on those two passages around two points. Number one, God's power is displayed so that your nation will seek him. And number two, God's people are dispatched so that your nation will serve him. Let's take a look first of all in verses 15 through 19 at God's power on display. Now since we're going to focus on verses 15 through 19 and verses 59 through 64, 
Let me give you a brief overview of the entire chapter so you know the context from which these scriptures come. In verses one through five, God announced that Babylon would be defeated and destroyed for its treatment of Judah. God had raised them up to discipline his people, but they had grown proud and refused to acknowledge the Lord. They didn't uh, acknowledge that it was the Lord whom they were serving. They thought it was their own greatness, and so God is going to cut them down. In verse six, God told his people to flee Babylon ahead of the impending destruction. In verse seven, God spoke of how terrible was Babylon's sin as a nation. Then in verses 15 through 19, you're gonna see that both Babylon and her idols would be destroyed. In verses 20 through 24, God called King Cyrus his battle ax, his implement of destruction to crush Babylon. We know that it was Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire that came and destroyed Babylon. In verses 59 through 64, Uh, you're told that God sent this message of destruction to Babylon in a scroll that Jeremiah penned. It was to be read aloud and then tied to a rock and thrown into the Euphrates River to illustrate the completeness of Babylon's demise at the time. Now we're gonna look at verses 15 through 19 because they transcend God's particular dealings with Babylon and they speak to us about his dealings with nations generally. And so look at verse 15. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heaven by his understanding. God is the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in what is called special creation, the literal interpretation of the account of creation in the book of Genesis, accepting it as an accurate historical account of the creation of the universe in essentially its present form over the course of six 24-hour days. Creation is here described using words power, wisdom, and understanding. Different parts of creation are described using those words. It says he made the earth, and that focuses on the material aspects of creation. In his power, or by his power, God spoke all things into being out of nothing, by his power. It says he established the world, and that means, in his wisdom rather, and that means that God put the material world that he created into an orderly system. It isn't just chaos, there is an order to our universe, an an immense, incredible order that cannot be explained uh, any other way other than by there being a creator. And then it says he stretched out the heaven by his understanding, and that's interesting in that one of the meanings of the word understanding is discretion, which means the freedom to determine what should be done. This tells us that God spoke the earth into existence out of nothing. He set it in an orderly pattern and is at work in it to accomplish something. In other words, he created the world and established its order to accomplish his purpose. What is he trying to accomplish? Well, one of the things, according to Paul on Mars Hill, he's trying to encourage men to seek him and to be saved. Creation is a backdrop, it's a stage in order for God to create human beings and to give them free will, to give them an opportunity to freely respond to his love by grace through their faith and for him to have a relationship with them. And so that's what these verses are telling us. It says in verse 16, when he utters his voice, There's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind 
out of his treasuries. Jeremiah is using typical poetic language to say that if a person looks at the earth, he or she will see that creation is speaking to them about the greatness and glory of God. He focuses on certain aspects of what we might call nature or the natural world. And he says, we have a natural innate understanding that these are coming to us from a benevolent creator. He's talking about the witness of creation, which is everywhere. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. And so we say that creation, the creation of the world, has a testimony of the glory of God. The question becomes, can it save? Can a person be saved without specifically hearing about Jesus Christ? It's a very interesting question. And before you answer, I should tell you that there is a lot of disagreement among Christians, people who we would consider Christians, born-again Christians. Uh, There are actually three basic positions on this issue, and there are varying positions within each position. Restrictivism asserts that all unevangelized people are damned to hell because they did not hear about Jesus Christ. Apart from human preaching, there can be no salvation. R.C. Sproul is one who follows a type of restrictivism. He acknowledges that people will be judged according to the light they have of creation and that they have a law written on their hearts in conscience, but unless the gospel is actually preached to them by a human messenger, he says they are consigned to damnation. The other extreme is called universalism. This is a weak position that we don't, aren't ever going to buy into, but it, it is a position, and some of those who hold it are genuine Christians. It asserts that all unevangelized people will ultimately be reconciled to God and be saved. For some universalists, this takes place after death in some sort of a second chance scenario. Universalism is based upon the unlimited atonement of Jesus Christ, that he is the savior of all men. God's will that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life and on the sovereign love of God. And as I said, this is a very weak position uh, and one that I can't find real solid bearing for. Inclusivism asserts that some of those who do not hear the name of Jesus can nevertheless be saved before they die if they respond in faith to whatever limited revelation of God they do have, such as creation all around them and conscience within them. If you're an inclusivist, you believe that salvation is only in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not to be found in other religions or in other ways of approaching God. But you need not be aware of all the specifics in order to believe in the God of the Bible. You just respond to the light that God has given you in creation and in conscience, and he leads you along. And inclusivists would point to several characters in the Old Testament 
who seem to be genuinely saved, never having heard about Jesus Christ. Job comes to mind for one. Uh, when we uh, encounter Job in what might be the oldest book of the Bible, he already has an understanding of worship and sacrifice and is busy sacrificing to the Lord, but it's clear uh, that Job has a very limited grasp of theology and has never heard the name of Jesus Christ, though he is a saved individual. Norman Geisler, he's a theologian that we like, he expresses a very conservative, inclusivist position when he writes this. He says, those who did not hear the gospel could have for God rewards those who seek him according to Hebrews eleven sixteen. when people respond to the light of creation and or their conscience God provides the light of redemption since he knows exactly who will be where when the gospel is preached he knows that no one who would have received salvation did not have the opportunity and so one position uh, within inclusivism is that uh, we know that God has scattered men all over the globe in order that they would seek him, grope after him, and find him. And Geisler speaks for many who say that if a person responds to the light that they have through creation and conscience, God sees to it that they get more light and are brought to a place where they can make a decision to believe the gospel. Uh, we are... I'm sure there are restrictivists here. I doubt that there are any universalists here. I think if we pushed into a corner, most of us are in some sense inclusivists, believing that God is a great God uh, and desires the salvation of as many as possible. And let me say this. This is something that I've come to. You may not agree with me. But uh, given different biblical viewpoints, if you, you, you know, study something out and you say, hey, this position is biblical and this position is biblical even though they disagree, I'm always going to choose the one that portrays God as more gracious, as more merciful, as more like Jesus Christ than the one that says, nope, sorry, millions of people are consigned to hell. There's nothing they can do. They were consigned that way from the creation. It's too bad for them. I may not be sure how inclusivism works in every situation, but I know that it is a biblical position and I trust the Lord to work all of those things out. Universalism, nah, uh, it's pretty clear from the Bible that not everybody is going to be saved in the end. He is the savior of all men, right? That's what the Bible says, but especially of those who believe. And you need to be brought to a place of belief before you die because the Bible says it is appointed unto men what? Once to die and after this comes a judgment. And so we're somewhere in the inclusivist camp. Now the passage we referenced in Acts 17, clearly inclusivist because it tells us that God has scattered the nations all over the earth with the express purpose that men might seek after him. God pre-appointed Babylon as a nation largely to discipline his people. But another one of his purposes in doing so was so that they would seek after him. Instead of seeking him, they turned to idols. Verse 17, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by a carved image, for his molded image is falsehood. There's no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Babylon's idols were made of metal, stone, and wood. An idol can be an idea, can be an ideal, can be a person, it can be a pursuit. It's been said that an idol can be anything 
that takes the rightful place of God in your life. In Babylon's case, God had given them creation and conscience, but he also provided his people and their testimony as a witness to himself. In verse 19, it says, the portion of Jacob talking about the Jews, is not like them, not like the idols, for he is the maker of all things and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so God is the creator, the maker, and the Jews are a testimony to him. And so the Babylonians, even though they had conquered the Jews, destroyed Jerusalem, knocked down the walls and had them held captive, through the ministry of Jeremiah and Daniel and other prophets, they could know that they were nothing but a tool in God's hands in order to discipline his people. And it could humble them to realize how they were being used uh, and how they could come into a relationship with God as well. They could know the history of the nation of Israel, how they... uh, came out of Egypt destroying the Pharaoh, how they came into the land of promise and those kinds of things. And so God had given them a testimony in creation and conscience and also by the nation of Israel. It's interesting today, today the nation of Israel is a testimony to all the nations of the world, is it not? Even though the Jews are there in largely unbelief, they're not Christians, nevertheless the very existence of Israel as a nation in her promised land is a testimony to every nation in the United Nations that there is a God, a living God, and he is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's a powerful thing. When you go to the United Nations as an ambassador and you see that there's a nameplate there, Israel, it speaks volumes to you about the reality of the God of the Bible, whether you want to admit it or not. God is at work throughout history over all the earth in every nation that was or is or is yet to be to reveal himself so men will seek him and be saved. Now getting back to our own great nation, we have definitely been blessed, as Winthrop said, as the city on a hill. What I didn't know was that in that same speech in which Winthrop spoke about the city on a hill, he qualified it by cautioning that, and he, I quote, If we deal falsely with God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. Historian Donald Scott wrote, in the decades following Winthrop's famous speech, most New England ministers preached less about New England's divine mission than issued deep laments about how far New Englanders had fallen from fulfilling the requirements of their covenant with God. Jeremiads, subsequent historians have called them. And so tapping into this idea of Jeremiah warning that a nation was about to fall, uh, these ministers uh, said, hey, we're supposed to be the city on a hill, but they looked at the state of Christendom and they said, we are not the Christian nation that we ought to be and we need to repent. And man, this goes back a few hundred years. Uh, I think we're in trouble again and that we, we need to be Jeremiads and say, hey, our nation is in trouble and the answer is to repent and turn to God. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's the program. And that segues nicely into our second point that we be more like Jeremiah, verses 59 through 64. God's people are dispatched so that your nation will serve him. 
Jeremiah gave his people several object lessons throughout his ministry. You might remember he buried a linen belt and dug it up to show that God would save the remnant of his people. He bought a clay jar from a potter and smashed it outside the city walls to show that God would destroy Jerusalem. He bought a field in enemy-occupied territory to show that God would bring his people back home in time and that their land would be valuable again. Now he had an object lesson for the Babylonians. Verse 59, the word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Sariah was the quartermaster. Chronologically, the events of chapter of this set of verses take place in chapter 29. You kind of go crazy trying to do a chronology of uh, Jeremiah. It's not in chronological order. He mentions Zedekiah and his trip to Nebuchadnezzar, so that puts us all the way back in chapter 29. Against Jeremiah's better judgment, King Zedekiah of Judah tried to rebel against Babylon in 594 B.C., When the Babylonians got wind of the rebellion, they ordered Zedekiah back to Babylon to declare his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, and he decided to take with him his quartermaster, Sariah. When Jeremiah heard about Sariah's mission, he gave him the latest edition of his prophecy about Babylon to take with him and to read. And so we read in verse 60, so Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, oh Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Thanks a lot, Jeremiah. He hears that these guys are headed to, uh, to be called on the carpet, really, and, and this is a very dangerous, dicey situation. Hey, while you're there in Babylon talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the most important guy in the world right now, that pagan, read this scroll to him about how Babylon is going to be destroyed by our God. It's, it's like, do you ever not tell people where you're going? Because, they, oh, hey, there's this little place, you know, it's just 100 miles out of the way. And if you, you know, can you go there and can you get me, you know, this and stuff? Yeah, no. I'll give you money. I don't care. I don't know, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're very amenable to things. You just, maybe you can't wait to, maybe you plan your vacations around other people. Say, hey, you know, we're thinking about going on vacation. Where would you like us to go so that I can bring you back a, a shirt? Or, or something, I just anything you want, just because we don't really care. You know, our time is nothing to us. So uh, just whatever you want. I, I'm the worst. I always like, figure out where people are going, and I say, hey, there's this coffee shop. And, uh, but it's always mutually beneficial because I turn you on to some great coffee that way. But anyway, back to our text. So here's, you know, Zedekiah, he's kind of this weak puppet king, and uh, Sariah, we don't know much about him, except he turns out to be a pretty bold guy, and Jeremiah hands him this scroll, and they say, well, what is this? This is my latest prophecy against Babylon. You're to read it up there in uh, Babylon. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was demanding that Zedekiah come grovel before him. From our perspective, is it not true that we understand that God was actually dispatching Sariah to rebuke Nebuchadnezzar? And see, this is the way you have to start thinking. 
You're Saraya, you're Jeremiah, you're not gonna get an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You're just not. You're nobody to him. And, and if he knew about you, he'd have even less to do with you. And so God says, I have a unique way of getting you into King Nebuchadnezzar's presence. He's gonna call you to come up there. He's gonna invite you, thinking that he is going to put you in your place, but in reality, you're going to be my ambassador to tell him what's up. God has this interesting way of putting us places, getting us into situations that we could never get into on our own, and quite honestly, we don't wanna get into, uh, but once we're there, the Lord does a great work. Who was he to rebuke the world's most powerful ruler? He was God's ambassador. As a simple believer in Jesus Christ, you possess great authority on earth. My favorite picture of this in the Bible would be Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. You remember the story? Philip was at a revival. He started a revival in the area of Samaria. And then God called him away. He said, I want you to go sit on the desert road. Just hang out there. I don't know if he, he would have looked like just some kind of a hobo there or a homeless person. We'll preach for free or something. You know, he's got a sign. He's just sitting there. All of a sudden, this huge caravan comes by. It's carrying the treasurer of Ethiopia, this Ethiopian eunuch who is the treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, very powerful man. He's coming by and... Um, He's being carried along, you know, in one of those things that people walk and carry you in. And he happens to be reading a scroll of Isaiah that he purchased at great cost at the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't understand what he's reading. He didn't get any answers at the temple from the Jew, Jewish leaders. And so God, the Holy Spirit, whispers to Philip and says, I want you to go and kind of hang out near that, uh, you know, eunuch where he's being carried along. I would have argued for half an hour at least, you know, but uh, because I'm sure, you know, you, you don't just walk up to a motorcade like that, but he did. And then he figures out that this guy doesn't understand what he's reading, and the guy says, well, come up here and help me. You know, and Philip begins to share with him from that passage in Isaiah. He says, well, the, here's the thing you didn't get told in Jerusalem. The prophet is talking about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the God-man who came and died for your sins and rose from the dead. And the Ethiopian eunuch is so excited. They have this talk, and, and apparently Philip gets real deep into it because a few minutes later, the eunuch says, hey, there's some water over there. I wanna get baptized. Philip says, sure, let's go for it. And get, they get down and imagine this. I mean, you're like, you know, you're this powerful individual and you're, you've just taken a homeless person into your carriage, as it were, and now this guy is baptizing you. And then on top of that, as he comes up out of the water, the Ethiopian, Philip disappears. He's raptured from one spot on the earth to another spot. So this Ethiopian, he gets back into his camel cruiser, you know, which is cool, First class, but I'll tell you, the first class travel belongs to Philip. And so everything about that scene from an earthly perspective talks about authority and power and strength being with that Ethiopian, but in reality, his heart is sick for lack of the knowledge of God and the person with real power, with real authority, and with real wealth is the simple believer in Jesus Christ. It's Philip the evangelist who all he has to say is, the person you're reading about in Isaiah is Jesus Christ. Do you want to get saved and baptized? I do. 
And, and, and so this is fascinating to me. As a simple believer in Jesus Christ, you and I possess great authority. Verse 63, now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. What a great visual this is. There's no hope for Babylon. Her prophecy was read and then it was sunk to the bottom of the Euphrates there to be destroyed. Now, did Saraya read all these words to King Nebuchadnezzar? Did he read them publicly like a street preacher with people passing by? If he did either of those, he likely was punished afterward and it therefore attests to his boldness in the Lord. Even though he was the Lord's ambassador, even though he's the guy with real spiritual power, it doesn't preclude Nebuchadnezzar from having him killed uh, for reading this kind of thing. Each of us in some small or great measure are called upon to be a Sarea or a Philip. God really does dispatch us to people in order that we might let them know we are here on this earth to seek him, to be saved by him, and to serve him. It's a very simple message. We are a very simple people. There's nothing overtly complex about it. We were blind, spiritually speaking, dead in trespasses and sins, and then by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we could see our sins were forgiven and now we're on our way to heaven and we want other people to know about that and God says, well, so do I. I've scattered people all over the globe for centuries so that they will seek me, grope after me and find me and guess what? A lot of those people are right here, right where you're at. They're at your school, they're at your work, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your church. They're everywhere. People whom I love. Because after all, Jesus said, I'm the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Uh, and so we are those called upon to be uh, the light of the world. You know, that city on a hill illustration is interesting. We are only, as a nation, the city on a hill to the extent believers are the light of the world. Here's the passage that all of that is taken from. You recognize it. It's from Matthew chapter five, Jesus speaking, and he says to us as individuals, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so, uh, we're the city on a hill insofar as you and I are the light of the world. And as far as being the light of the world, it's not something that we have to try to become. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Are you saved? You're filled with my spirit. You're the light of the world. All you have to do is let people see your good works. And even those are things that God has before ordained that you should walk in them that he shows you. And so really the, the bottom line here, it's, it's so simple we miss it if we will simply but powerfully live the Christian life in word and in deed, our light will go forth, our city will shine, the Lord will be pleased, people will get saved, amen?